Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. When David Letterman started Late Night in 1982, the New York Times said he was, quote, more of an acquired taste than most comedians, unquote. Uh, Now it's time, ladies and gentlemen, for a segment of this program that we like to call Stupid Pet Tricks. We grew up on Johnny, a true gentleman who could deliver a smooth setup and punchline, occasionally helped by a wink. But suddenly, with late night, the ultimate punchline was the fact that some gap-toothed, unknown smartass even had a show. His pet tricks were stupid on purpose, and so was he. Tune in, and you might catch him lowering himself into a water tank, wearing a suit made from 3,400 Alka-Seltzer tablets. <laughs> and I, we have the oxygen here, and I have been asked about 12 times by various members of the staff to remind you, don't try this at home. <laughs> I know you have the 900-gallon tank. I know you have the oxygen. I know you have the suit of Alka-Seltzer and a staff of 100 people. Dave seized every opportunity to remind us that his big network show was a ridiculous waste of time. But if you were in on the joke, and a lot of people were, it was also a stroke of genius. Here's a little something the boys at Late Night R&D have been fooling around with. We call it sky bowling. Today, David Letterman is an institution and has forever changed American comedy. Before Letterman, the extended drum roll was sincere. After Letterman, it would never be without at least a hint of irony. His show changed America. And after 30 years, Dave's changed as well. I do a lot less work than I used to do. Uh, I just got to a point where I have no patience for meetings, so I don't go to any meetings. I can't make decisions anymore. I don't like making decisions. You know, we have a dozen producers. They can have the meetings, and they can make the decisions, and I'll just come down, and somebody tell me what to do, and, and we go. And uh, But it was different before. Yeah, I, I used to uh, be involved in everything big and large. I don't think that was necessarily good, but at the time, I thought it was what was required when you had your own show. You had to had to have everything, you know, in your view. 
view and certainly influence e- each little choice. The guests that are on the show, do you still help select the guests or someone uh, else takes the other Yeah, we, people who select them. Occasionally I will think of, oh, I heard about somebody that did so-and-so. Could we look into that and this and that? Very little, very little. I mean, these, Other people do that. We uh, have the, the good luck of these people having been together for a long, 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 long time. They all know what the expectation is. Of course, when you're in that situation, the, the bad version of it is, oh, God, it's the same thing. It's the assembly line. We're just building the same car over and over and over again. You feel that way? Sometimes? Sometimes. I'm the biggest offender of that. I'm 65. I don't have the energy I had when I was 35. There are certain things I like about the show now that uh, I like more than before. Such as? Uh, I like talking to people and uh, the opportunity to learn something. Or if I have a, a natural curiosity about somebody, I really look forward to that. Or if I have something that I know is going to be silly and stupid, and I want my uh, authorship out there on this something silly and stupid, then I get eager about that. But in the old days, we just were going uh, 20 hours a day. We'd be out on the streets. We'd be going to New Jersey. We'd be up all night shooting, and uh, there would be contests, and I can't do that show anymore. The more successful the show has become and the more successful you have become, do you find that in terms of programming the show, you have to rely more on stars? Is yeah. there a kind of person? Yeah. You, it's, you, it's completely different. In the beginning, when we, we started the, uh, the late night show at uh, NBC, we had a liaison between Johnny Carson and ourselves named Dave Tebbett. He had worked at NBC and then had become close with Johnny, and so Johnny hired him. And he was a guy who, honest to God, talked like this. Dave came in to make sure there were no conflicts between our show and The Tonight Show. He says, for example, uh, let's just say that Bob Hope is arrested for using drugs. And we just all just, <laughs> just like, really? In what universe is that a likelihood? And he says, you can't then do jokes about Bob Hope. And we said, okay, all right, we'll get that. We were not allowed to use, do a monologue, and we were not allowed to have an orchestra. And we also felt that a way to distinguish ourselves, since Johnny had the big stars that people really wanted, we would then kind of have... Fringe uh, people. That's exactly right. And so we we sort of mined that vein as much as we could. It was sort of a, a fortunate coincidence that we were prohibited in that, that sense because we weren't really interested in having mainstream people on, too. Again, I don't know how effective it was in, in terms of programming. I don't know if people noticed the difference and appreciated it or just thought, oh, they can't get very good guests. And now it's completely different. It's, you know, stars. Broadway cavalcade of stars. Right. And that's fine. I have no problem with that. I, we're always fighting the Internet, and they seem to be winning. We in used, terms of what? In terms of uh, the small guest, the kid that swims out into the East River and saves a cat. or right. But we're always so far downstream from that story by the time it's all over the, the Internet that there's no point in putting it on. You start, you started in radio? Yeah. My first job was at a radio station. You at, went to uh, college? You went to Ball State University. I studied radio and TV. Why did you study radio and TV? Uh, academically, um, uh, you know, I went to Ball State in, in those days, graduated with, a, I think it's a Bachelor of would it be Bachelor of Arts or Bachelor of Science? I don't I'd remember. I'd say Bachelor of Science probably back then, but who knows? Yeah. No language requirement and no math requirement. <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> it really saved me because I was academically I was not very good. Early on, I was very lucky that I knew how to save myself. I was a sophomore year in high school, and I had signed up for a public speaking course. And the first day, you were supposed to get up and extemporaneously speak for five minutes. You know, everybody's twitchy and sweaty and worried about this, as was I. And then I got up there, the nervousness and the twitchiness and everything dissipated. I loved it, and I thought, 
oh my God, maybe this is a way I can distinguish myself. And I did, you know. But had you been the entertainer as a child no. in your household? Oh, in the yeah. household, yeah, right. sure, to what extent. And then my parents wouldn't put up with it much. <laughs> there was a fine line between being, oh, isn't he amusing and, and being just a and wise. And being erotic, yeah, yeah. And being a wise ass, and we don't like that. I can remember uh, my, my father uh, was big and loud and noisy and, and always had stuff going on. And my mother, completely non-demonstrative. And I can remember every Sunday night after dinner, my dad would make popcorn and we would sit in front of the TV and watch Ed Sullivan. And Ed used to have this habit of, well, come on now, let's really hear it for him. And my mom used to say, I don't like the way Ed begs the audience for applause. So she was just completely standoffish by the notion. She was a connoisseur of television hosts. <laughs> and then, ergo, no, incredible. No, she was not a connoisseur. She resented the fact that somebody had to be encouraged right. to support what yeah. they had just said. That Sullivan was whoring himself on That's exactly television. right. That's exactly The great right. Ed Sullivan. Yeah. So you go to Ball State and you get this degree, Bachelor of whatever, we don't know mm -hmm. yet. And what do you do after that? Well, through a friend of mine at a, uh, the ABC affiliate in Indianapolis, where I lived, which was uh, 60 miles away from where I went to school, and still is just about 60 miles, I heard that they were auditioning for, a, they wanted a summer announcer. So I went down there and auditioned, never having been in a television studio in my life, and got the job. I mean, it was a fixed fight because I had no business getting the job. I wasn't very good. I didn't know what I was doing. I had no experience. And they gave me the job. And suddenly, the bulb that was turned on my sophomore year in high school now is is burning white hot right. because it's, are you kidding me? I'm 19, and I'm going to be on TV? I mean, it's preposterous. And what kind of job did you have? I was uh, the booth announcer. You, so I can't believe you said that. Back when they had booth announcers on yeah, television. Yeah, that's right. That's what I did. These guys defined my childhood, by the way. These were the guys. Uh, the principal uh, responsibility was to keep the program log. There used to be a lot of technical glitches in television mm -hmm. back then. Yeah. You had booth announcers who would pick up the slack when something went wrong that's with, right. with tape to tape. That's yeah. exactly right. A station break was a huge process because you had a control room. You had a director. You had uh, two or three 16-millimeter projectors. You had a slide chain, and you had the big two-and-a-half-inch Ampex tape. Let's say you had four commercials in a uh, station break. Then you'd have to roll the tape. Then you'd have to count down and roll the film. Then you'd have to go live to the, to the booth to read copy over a slide okay. and then back to the film. And it was a, an enormous thing. Periodically, the FCC would come in and check your, your log, so it was a big deal. At a summer job in, in 1960, 68, I was making 150 bucks a week. I got to be the weekend weatherman. I'd never done that before. I got to read the news on the, on the morning kitty show, and none of this would happen today. You know, people are qualified to do that job now much earlier than I certainly was. You know, like this was Ryan Seacrest University. Put him in any job when he was 9 or 10, he could have done a better job than I'm doing now. Right. But for me, it was like, holy cow. So I go back to school now to my radio and TV studies, and all of a sudden it's, hey, there's Duck Lips. We've seen him on TV. <laughs> and oh, my God, what a progression that was for me. Now, that was what year? Uh, I think I started there in 68, and I, I stayed there. So the there. war is going on. Yeah, and you right. And you avoid draft and you avoid all that. Uh, in those days, you got the student deferment. Right. And Ball State was principally a teacher's college in those days. And so— uh, it They was, wanted teachers. It was chock full of guys who wanted that student deferment and also the teaching deferment. Right. I was not studying teaching. So the minute I graduated, I was reclassified 1A. Went for my pre-draft physical in April. They said, okay, we'll call you. 
And then in the meantime, before I was called, Nixon announced the uh, national lottery. They were going to end the draft. They were trying to step down the, the Vietnamese war. My birthday was 342 or something like that out of 356. So that meant even though I was 1A and had my pre-induction physical and was ready to go, it was over for me. At the time, I didn't know how lucky I was. I felt guilty because I had friends who had gone and I had friends who had been in the Marine Corps and I just felt like, well, why me? These guys went, why shouldn't I go? And then it dawned on me pretty quickly. I had been among the really, really lucky. Of course. Yeah. yeah. What was the political landscape like at Ball State when you went there? Well, it was just starting to, uh, I I used to make jokes that they'd have student protests, but it was to get the cafeteria cooks to wear hairnets. Uh, (laughs) But it was was creeping in. It was not a hotbed. It was not Madison, Wisconsin. It was Muncie, Indiana. But it was starting, and there were uh, sit-ins and demonstrations, and, you know, Bobby Kennedy had spoken on campus. So it was starting. But I I wouldn't say it was, uh, it wasn't quite lit up the way it might have been in other regions. You mentioned booth announcers, and I remember I did a YouTube search. I wanted to find this guy that was literally the voice of my childhood, W-O-R, and he'd come on and say, you know, uh, next on Million Dollar Movie, Barbara Stanwyck tells Gary Cooper where he can go in Ball of Fire. <laughs> and he just had this voice that was just, it just haunted yeah. me. Well, that, that's interesting. You mentioned that guy. I had the, the little uh, kid voice from Indiana. I wasn't that guy. But I still had to do the job, and I can't impress upon you enough how tedious it is to sit there for eight hours watching, programming, and logging everything that happens. If you lose audio, you have to log that. If you lose video, you have to log that. You have to log sign-on, sign-off, every commercial, every station break. And at first, I was scared silly, but then, like everything else, you get accustomed to it and you become blasé, and so I would just start wandering the building. You know, it was so embarrassing. They would, will the booth announcer please report to the announced booth? And I, oh, my God, I've missed the, the so-and-so. The main announcer was a, a guy named Rob Stone, tremendous voice and a, a hopeless alcoholic. I mean, a real alcoholic. They uh, go hand in hand, don't they? Yeah, kind of. Certainly in those days, it was not uncommon. He would come in and he would bring a pint with him. And so in the spirit of this, we who were working the sign-off shift, we would always send somebody out for beer, and we would be at the station uh, late at night signing off, and myself and the director and whomever else was there, we'd be drinking beer. Oh, my, was this fun. In those days, you would do a five-minute news summary before sign-off, nightcap news, and then you would do the, uh, the broadcast statement. Uh, you'd read that over the slide of the station, and then they would go to the national anthem with the waving flag. <laughs> One night, a guy in the props department said, I can reconstruct exactly the station as, as pictured on the slide. We can make it blow up. So as you're, <laughs> as you're reading the uh, thank you and good night and, and uh, why not tune in WLW overnight and blah, blah, this and so until tomorrow, good night and good luck. I have the thing blow Kaboom. up. Yeah. And so we did. Oh, God, we were proud of ourselves. You know, we really thought we had done something. Jeez, nobody ever said anything. No. It was bizarre. Nobody got fired. Nobody asked a question about it. You know, it was this cult of four or five guys who had pulled this off. And we just thought, well, this is, one, it was fun. But two, you wanted, but no, nobody nobody said anything. But, but what's interesting is from school and then doing the job and so forth and the booth thing, the comedy gland is secreting through yes. the entire yeah. time. Yeah. What are you doing for that? Meaning other than blowing up the studio and the, and the sign-off, uh, are was, you writing? Or are you- yes, I, I was looking for any outlet, and it came for me doing the weather. 
I knew nothing about weather. And you, you'd go downstairs and they'd have the AP machine and the map would come over, the national map, and you would go to the big magnetic board in the studio and you put the low uh, system and you put the high system and you put the occluded front and you put the rain showers. And so it told you everything. Any time at all that I could monkey with that, I was very happy. I can remember two episodes. One, I was... Uh, had forecast sunny and dry, and we we go off the air and blah blah. And I go outside. This this is a horrible thunder shower. The rain is coming down in sheets, and I I was just twenty feet away, just oblivious of this this uh, dangerous monsoon. Yes, coming through this one of these violent midwestern summer thunderstorms coming through, <laughs> attacking the station. I got to be well known because this Sunday night show was on after the ABC Sunday Night Movie. And in those days, that was big programming. Big show. Yeah. We got a bunch of complaints. And this was when people were wearing bell-bottom pants. I don't think you could buy regular pants. Got a lot of calls about he's either not wearing underpants or he needs to wear underpants. That's how I distinguish myself. Do you want to clear that up now? Were you wearing underpants? Well, of course you, I was wearing, wearing underpants. underpants. It was Indianapolis. I, yeah. we, we're not yeah. taught Good to God. go out without our underpants. We're Americans. I, it's, whatever problem was perceived was not mine, I right. assure you. Right. And then where do you go from there? Uh, in terms of underpants? In, well, if you wish. <laughs> I got tired of uh, sitting in the booth and tired of working weekends. And also, they didn't... Uh, they didn't want me there. They would keep bringing in auditions for my job. <laughs> that really hurt my feelings. But I couldn't argue with them because I didn't know what I was doing. But the cumulative effect of being on TV a, a lot there, we got this memo once from the research department. And of all of the people, the, the anchor team and whomever else, I had the highest uh, Q rating of anybody there. And it was only by accident, really. So I started looking for a job. Couldn't get hired out of the market. Some people I knew were coming in to start up a, a talk radio station. So I went to work at the new talk radio station. What was the format? It was News Talk Sports, WNTS. When I resigned to quit, give my notice to the uh, general manager, the guy said, and it chilled me at the time, he said, really, you're leaving this TV station to go work for a brand new radio station? And I said, yeah. And he said, you will never be heard of again. So I went to the station, worked there for a year, realized that I had to make a move. Nobody would, would listen. It was a daytime station. This was tremendous. They had a daytime license, which meant... The radio station came on when the sun came up and went off when the sun went down. Literally. Yeah. And then winter, we were off at 345 in the <laughs> afternoon. <laughs> and I, I had the midday shift. I'd come in at noon, and two hours later, I'd be going home. It was it was Enjoy great. your afternoon. Yes. We're signing off. <laughs> and then in the summer, conversely, you were on yeah. to like 930 or 10. It was uh, uh, awful. It was uh, Watergate, and, and people assumed, well, the guy's got a talk show on the radio. I'll bet he knows everything there is to know about Watergate, and I knew nothing. And people wouldn't call in, and I'd have to read endless pages of wire copy. I remember reading a, a story about Gordon Strachan, S-T-R-A-C-H-A-N. His name kept coming up, a special counsel, so-and-so, Gordon Strachan, advisor of the White House, Gordon Strachan. Finally, the phones light up, and I said, thank God. And I said, yes. He says, uh, it's not Strachan, it's Strawn. You're mispronouncing the guy's <laughs> name. I said, okay, thanks. Do you have <laughs> a question? No. Click, buzz, so there you go. Were you ambitious during this time? Did you have an ambition? Yeah, I wanted to. Uh, I really thought um, I really thought I could write half hours, situation comedies. I thought I could what do What did it. you watch? Well, in my childhood, it was completely different. It would have been stuff like Saturday morning nonsense. Then as I grew older, you'd get uh, Mayberry, uh, the Andy, Andy Griffith show, Ozzie and Harriet Nelson, the Nelsons, and that kind of stuff. And then later on, in, in those days, it was all the Mary Tyler Moore things, the Bob Newhart show and the Mary Tyler Moore show. And I really thought, oh, I can write uh, one of those Mary Tyler Moore shows. And it turned out I couldn't. 
as you know, there's a template for writing those things. They use the template because it's successful. And if you don't know the template and you think you can make a better version of it, it's a, a very foreign object to them. To you, you think, look, I've improved on the template, but they don't want that. They, want they, that. they want something They're that like works. They're like Detroit. Yes, that's right. I mean, we're talking about Mary Tyler Moore. That's pretty good stuff. Sure. Smart. And you were in L.A. at that time? No, I was still in Indianapolis, and I would be sending scripts and looking for an agent. Finally, a guy said, yeah, if you come to Los Angeles, he said, I'll be your agent. So with that encouragement, I, I just left. And I don't know about you, but, you know, your friends say, okay, here, you can meet with so-and-so, and, and you can meet uh, Mel Blank's son, you can meet with him, and, <laughs> and I know this one, and I know that right. one. And so you go out there with high hopes. I guess it's like the pioneers in the Conestoga wagon, and they run out of beans, you know, they're in Salt Lake, and they got nothing to eat. So within the first week, you run through all of your appointments, and then you got nothing. Yeah, then you're Shanghai. That's right. You're, that's just, right. you're just on the shoals <laughs> there. That's right. In L.A. I remember when I went to L.A., I did a soap opera at 30 Rock. The show was about to go off the air. And I'll never forget this guy that was the producer. You know, we're in the hallway, and they asked me to extend my contract for a few months. And he says that line to me. He says, what do you think you're going to do, go out to Hollywood, become a star in the movies? <laughs> I'm walking down the hallway. He's going, you listen to me. Come back here, you. You don't walk away from me. And I walk away from the guy, and I go to L.A. Now, were you ever haunted by that? <laughs> did, did you, honestly, did, did you, because in my case, Every I thought night. the guy was, I said, oh, yeah, well, of course I haven't do. considered that. Well, of course you do. Yeah. Who, 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 did you ever think you were going to be, I mean, I don't want to get, you know, crass about it, but you live a very, very good life. You've been an enormously successful man. Did you ever dream you would be as no. successful as you are? No. Never? No. I, and, I, and I'll tell you the, the same for you, same for most people in this, uh, in show business. You're just lucky enough to get to do exactly what you want to do all your life. So that's the success. You know, I always thought there was some commission that was going to come to my door of my apartment right. I was living in in West Hollywood, and they were knocking the door, they were going, we're the uh, motion picture acting commission, Yes, and we've uh, got the reports here, Mr. Baldwin, we're going to take you to the airport right away and send yeah. you back to New York. I, I think, uh, you You're know, not going to get into I, I know the origin of this is, is your personal fear, but I think that commission is not a bad idea, and long, long overdue, <laughs> honest <laughs> to God, can we get that up and yeah. on its feet? Can we, can we get a bill? I remember there was a, a, a guy, a, a writer for the uh, old Tonight Show. Somebody Cohen, his his listing in the white pages was, say it's Marty Cohen. It was not Marty Cohen. Marty Cohen, president of show business. <laughs> I, just, I thought, oh, that's lovely. <laughs> so when you were you doing stand up ever in Indiana? Uh, no, never did. In never. fact, one of the things that I didn't like doing was uh, uh, when I was at the radio station, part of the deal was, oh, we just sold a, th a thing to Kroger grocery stores, but part of the deal is we want you to go out there and emcee the so-and-so and so, and I hated it. And I finally told the guy, I said, I can't do this. So one of my big built-in fears was getting up in front of people that I didn't know and trying to, you know, hold their attention, let alone be funny. But for me, the, the roadmap uh, to pursue was handed to you uh, via Johnny Carson and The Tonight Show. They would have comics on. It would be David Brenner. And uh, they would say, oh, and they'll be appearing at the comedy store. And it seemed to be that the connection between the comedy store and The Tonight Show w was pretty close. Yeah. So even though he I— He mined that facility, that particular facility. Yeah. It was uh, the uh, the farm system for the comedy yeah. store. And great guys were coming out and getting on, and Steve Landisberg, and uh, on and on. I say on and on because I can't remember the name. So I just... <laughs> it works. Uh, yeah. Even though I wanted to be a writer because I didn't have the courage to tell my family and friends that what I really want to do is, you know, somehow get famous and be on TV. So when I went out there, the, the first Monday I was in uh, California when I moved in 75, I uh, wrote down some stuff and went to the comedy store and got on stage. 
How'd it go? It was, it was awful. I'd never been in a darkened room with a spotlight, and it was just like a train coming at me. Right. So I did my little five minutes from rote left, and then uh, the owner of the place, yeah, you should come back and do some more. <laughs> so I thought, are you kidding me? And she said, no, you can MC. So I came back, and I was the MC. You're fantastic, yeah. 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 Derek. <laughs> You're great. So, so that was 1975. 1978, Three years later, I was on The Tonight Show. That worked so much better than it should have. I think it must be harder now to and get— And was it three years of just work in that room and working the mic and working stand-up? Yeah, yeah. but it was—I mean, it was fun because every night you go there and you were hanging around guys, Jay Leno and, and Robin Williams and George Miller and Tom Dreesen and Jeff Altman and anybody now who you're aware of— you would see every night. And it was great fun. I mean, my God, it was great fun. It didn't make any difference what you did during the day. You knew that when it got dark, you'd be on Sunset Boulevard. The place would be packed. And in those days, the only room she had was this uh, tiny little original room. And it was next door to uh, Art LaBelle's. uh, He would have a 50s dance party in in the next room on the weekends. And you would get a lot of uh, gang guys going to Art LaBelle's 50s. Mob guys. No. Okay. Uh, what was gang then? Uh, Biker uh, barrio. gang? Oh, okay. Um, is that all right? Yeah, low riders. Yeah. Okay. And uh, one, one night, a friend of mine, Johnny Dark, is on stage, and a guy comes up, and he's got a gun. And he's standing next to Johnny while Johnny's doing his little singing impressions of uh, whomever. And, and he had to quietly, you know, talk his way out of the guy using the gun. And it was exciting. And Richard Pryor would come in, and Freddie Prinze would come in. So you say, yeah, night after night, but still in all, how could that not be fun? So did Carson find you there? Well, they had a guy. You know, they had a team of guys when I was there that would come in. Uh, and in the meantime, uh, I got on this Mary Tyler Moore show. Uh, to write. To write and perform. And Oh, that was, it was me and Michael Keaton, Jim Hampton, and Dick Sean, and Susie Kurtz, and uh, Julie Kahn. Judy right? Kahn. Judy Kahn. Thank you very right. much. So uh, from that show... Uh, they said, oh, well, we'll put uh, you on because you're on that show. You can come out and do stand-up, and then you go sit down and talk to Johnny. And without that, you never know what the formula is. You could be on nine times and never get to sit down with Johnny. Right. You could be on for six years and never – or you could be bumped 40 times. And never. But because of this – oh, and he's appearing on the so-and-so show, the Mary Tyler Moore show – I got to sit down with Johnny, and, and that was, again, that was craziness. That was, that was another one of feel? those. Well, you know what it is. Because you idolized him. It's, oh, yeah. It's such a jolt. The material is so committed. You don't have to think about anything. You just have to start talking, and it all comes out. The adrenaline takes days to burn out of you. Holy God, you're sitting next to Johnny Carson. I mean, you just can't believe it. I mean, to me, and I think most guys my age who are out there doing that, one, the fact that it worked. You know, really, I, I drove in a pickup truck with my wife to L.A., and three years later, I'm sitting next to Johnny Carson. That's not supposed to happen. You know, it's just not supposed to happen, but it did. Now, do you think that Carson was someone who—do you think he saw himself in you? Do you think he saw the Midwestern Boy, I don't know. gene in you? I don't know. I mean, it was so easy for other people to make that comparison, uh, and that seemed to be the formula, but I don't, I don't know if he felt that way or not. Um, I, I don't. I can't answer that. And I then what happened know. after that? Well, your life changed immediately. Suddenly, you weren't just a guy who was at the comedy store. You were the guy that had been on with Carson. Right. And then I, I was on, I think, th- two or three more times, and then I started hosting the show. 
And again, that was another, you know, you just feel like it's like it's like winning the World Series your rookie season. What's the you gap of time between when you first sat down with them and when you started hosting? Uh, the first time I was on was uh, November of 78, and I think I hosted, uh, it was Monday night opposite the Academy Awards. So it was the Good spring, spot. right? Yeah, in right, April. Right. So it would have been April, yeah. March, April, yeah. Johnny had other things yeah. to do. <laughs> he was having a big Oscar party. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Turn the lights out, kid. And it was, uh, I was just frozen. I was just frozen. I can remember Peter LaSalle coming up to me during the commercial break, and he said, you've got to loosen up. You've got to loosen up. <laughs> that I helps, too, doesn't it? Yeah, they get that in a manual. Thanks for that tip. Yeah, page 49. I remember the, the first night I was on The Tonight Show. And I'm, I'm telling you, for guys at the comedy store, this was it. This was like people lining up to squeeze through a funnel. You know, this was it, The Tonight Show. Fighting and competition and backstabbing and bad-mouthing to get to The Tonight Show. It's going to make or break you. If, if you don't do well, you'll never be heard of again. There's, there's no such thing as a guy bombing his first time on The Tonight Show and then having a delightful career. That just doesn't happen. Mm. You're gone. So there's a lot of pressure. So I, I'm getting ready to go out there just behind the curtain. And my manager at the time, Buddy Mora, who was with Jack Rollins and uh, uh, Joffrey. Charles Joffe, right. they handled Robin Williams and, and Woody Allen and Dick Cabot and some other guys. So that was a big deal for me to be with these people. And, and Buddy and I, nice enough guy, but we never never saw eye to eye on much. And, and I think a lot of it was my immaturity about show business or just ignorance, not immaturity. I, you know, I had no time to be immature. I was just ignorant. So we're standing there and Johnny's saying, our next guest is a young blah, 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 blah. And Buddy says to me, and, he, and Buddy always whispered. Everything was a whisper with Buddy. He says, uh, Robin got Popeye. And I said, what are you talking about? <laughs> His final words to me as I'm going on The Tonight Show for yeah. the first time, yeah. telling me about a booking for one of his other clients. Right. You know, and I just never got over that. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. More in a minute. Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian cocktail maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get Mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. Make Mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. 
Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is Alec Baldwin, and I'm talking with David Letterman. You know, you're a lot mellower now than you were, obviously, yes, right? absolutely. And you'd say that when you did the show, no matter how crazy or how wired you and the whole experience was of the early show, and you said running around and doing all the mm-hmm. taping and all the other bits and so forth and contests and everything. But, I mean, just your own nature seems like there was a kind of a an edge to it that, you, not that you've lost, but you seem like you've really just become, like, so much more, uh, what's the word, charming, well, I don't know about charming, but I, I know exactly what you're talking about, and the fact that it's noticeable by others is, is uh, an indication that maybe I'm on the right track, because <laughs> to to the exclusion of every other thing in my life, it was the success of this show. As a result, I waited to have a child 20 years too long. I just didn't do anything else. It was right. the show. And it had to be the show. And if it wasn't the show, then find out a way to make it the show. And did you come from that world like Lorne, for example, says to me, he's an, he, he lives a life where his credo is work is play. Mm-hmm. Like we have such interesting jobs. You know, you don't stop working. Just well, that's, work, 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 that's work. part of it. And uh, that is one of the great residuals of, of, you know, you're around all these funny people and you have silly ideas and you have silly conversations. You laugh yourself sick. But for me, it was like, oh my God, uh, you, you know, if, if I fail at this, it's all going away way. You know, if you fail at this, you got to get at the end of the line, and the line keeps getting longer. So to the exclusion of other important things, other aspects of life, I pursued the show. Then that changed, finally changed. Did you want it to change? No. At the, at the time, I, I, didn't, I didn't know there was another way to live your right. life. Right. I thought you, you had to keep banging your head and banging your head and banging your head. And I kept saying to myself, this is what they say. It's like pushing a rock uphill. It's like pushing a rock uphill. And one day, everything will change. Everything will be great. You'll succeed and everything will. Well, it never, it never quite worked that way for me. I think, uh, well, not too difficult to assume that this is one of the reasons I had the quintuple bypass surgery. Uh, and then my doctor, he said, you know, you, he says, you don't have to be this way. Flogging yourself. Yeah. He said, you can. Delegate. Yeah. Or you, you can, he says, there are, uh, they've made pharmaceutical advancements here. You can help yourself. And I said, no, 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 I can't because that would ruin this and that would ruin that. And uh, and then uh, Regina got, uh, we were able to get pregnant. I went into this uh, stark raving, anxious depression. <laughs> when she got pregnant? Yeah. Why? Uh, well, I was fine with it. I thought, if not now, when? You know. And she had wanted to have kids, like I said, 15, 20 years earlier. And so I, uh, this is a very complicated, uh, uninteresting story. No, that's okay. Well, we and it has, it has to do with being on the shingle, having shingles and being on exotic pain medication for the shingles and getting fed <laughs> up with the exotic pain medication <laughs> and saying to the pain doctor, I'm done, I'm not taking it anymore. And he said, well, you know, a lot of those things you can't just, I said, forget it, click. And I stopped taking these things. And within a couple of days, I just turned into this twitching, unicell, yeah. altered states. Yeah, yeah, it was very odd. Uh, and the guy said, "Well, you, you're in an anxious depression." And Lou said, "You know, there are things we can do here <laughs> to help you out." Right. And I said, "I'll try anything because I can't go on like this." Right. And so it was a small dose of an SSRI, 
suddenly I realized I can have myself, my personality, the person that I've known, and then lose what was detracting, what was hurting, what was actually an impediment. Groom out the things that you wanted to groom out. Yeah. And when I came to the show business and I was in Los Angeles in the beginning, I was like Gomer Pyle. Mm-hmm. I mean, I swear to God, I, I came to work and they well, said— I, Really, I, I have trouble that you were no, Gomer. I really, no, but really? I, mean, I don't mean in terms of, of, of lacking any sophistication, but they would give me—I'll never forget the first job I got. I go to an, an audition. I'd done the, the soap in New York, and they paid you, you know, a very small amount of money, and I thought I was Rockefeller. They paid you 450 bucks a day. I was, I was the richest member of my family. My dad was a school teacher with six kids. He didn't make any money. And I go out to L.A., and I, I'll never forget, but I go to uh, the old Lorimar, which is now Sony, and I go to the gate at Lorimar. I say, Alec Baldwin, he's like, you know, uh, here's your map. You're parking in building 67, ninth floor, <laughs> slot Red 12. <laughs> and, they, and they sent me to, like, you know, the Ukraine. I got to go all the way. And, the, and I go, now, where's the office I'm going to for the meeting? He goes, right over there, right next to me. <laughs> so I go, I park the car, trot all the way down, do an audition for the show Knots Landing. I get done. You know, I leave the thing. And no cell phones then. This is 1983. And so I pull up to a phone booth. I call my agent. It's late in the afternoon. They're still in the office. He goes, how did it go? I go, how did it go? I think it went pretty well. Pretty well? You moron! They want to hire you. <laughs> and I go, you're kidding me. He goes, he goes, yeah, of course. He goes, we're making a deal right now. We're closing the deal right now. You're going to get 25 for the pilot and 12 5 an episode. And I swear to God, coming from my background, I went, golly, <laughs> y'all going to pay me $2,500 for the pilot and $1,250 per episode every week? And he's like, no, you moron. They're going to pay you 25000 for the pilot and 12500 an episode. And I literally urinated in my trousers. <laughs> I'm standing at a phone booth on the corner of, like, you know, Walker and Washington in Culver City. And the guy tells me this. And that's when my life changed. Yeah. For, for me, it was always you were competing against yourself. We didn't go out and do a lot of reading. You know, some, sometimes I, I remember there was a uh, – the Jackson 5 had a summer show. So they would say, we need comics, and so they'd call the comedy store, and, you know, if, if Mitzi liked you, you'd get to go be on the Jackson 5 show. So it was never so much of one guy over another. Or there there would be shows like the Midnight Special or Don Kirshner's Rock Concert that they would routinely use comics. So there was plenty of work, and it wasn't, I think, as in acting, as you describe, guys elbowing each other out and, and higher-ups wanting to— step on their hands and hurt their but, feelings. But when, you, when you've done the show back from the NBC days and now through the many years at CBS, it's a very hermetic situation for you and nobody bothers you and there's never questions about your budget and there's never questions about nobody calls you, you don't have to deal with that? Mm-hmm. Or do you have to fight with the network about things like other shows do? Well, it's ne- never a fight. It's right. a, a negotiation, but we don't have the fight. You know, If, if right. we want to do something, we can pretty much do right. it. And again, what we want to do now is far different level and scope than we wanted to do when we were. Because when we, we came into this show, myself and, and Meryl and uh, the writers, we just thought, oh, America is, has been waiting for us we're going to change the face of television for America. And boy, it didn't happen that way, you know. It just didn't happen that way at all. We did a, a sketch on the old late night show, and it was with one of the writers, Tom Gamble, and it was Dale, the psychotic page. We had to set up nine holes of a miniature golf course. He would come in with an NBC page blazer, and he would play miniature golf. And with each 
a failing attempt on the whole, he would become more and more psychotic. There's your comedy, America. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, this it's, is what you've been waiting for. Yeah. Aren't yeah. you glad they're we're here? Their yeah. <laughs> I, I love on your show. I haven't done this in a while. I miss it because everything, I, I guess they can't do this stuff all the time. And maybe this bit is a victim of global warming. But I get there one time and they want me to ride the snowmobile on the roof of the building years ago. Yeah, yeah. They're all very droll, you know. Mm-hmm. And Biff always calls me Alex. I love that. <laughs> You're on the roof and it's snowing. And we're on the roof of your building and it's snowing. And Biff's like, okay, now Alex, you're going to ride the snowmobile around the roof a few times. There going to be men on every corner to catch you to keep you from going over the side. Is that all right? All right, Alex. Yeah. I'm like, great. Let me go. Danger. You know, I love it. The yeah. elements. Well, I was thinking about a year ago, I was looking around the uh, Ed Sullivan Theater. What a tremendous stroke of luck that was. Uh, I used to love working in the studio, and I, and I remember one day running into Lauren Michaels, he said to me, how long did it take you to get used to doing a TV show in a theater? And I knew exactly what he was saying because to him, TV comes out of a studio. And I, and I always felt that way myself. And, but I've really grown fond of the theater at uh, CBS, the Ed Sullivan Theater, for reasons like that and, and many more. It's comfortable. It's fun. It smells of decades and decades and decades of show business. There, there There's tunnels and, and alleys and, and, and rats. But it's fantastic. I mean, it's just so versatile and so great. And also, the way Hal set it up in the beginning, it's fairly intimate. I mean, you can have a pretty reasonable conversation there in this 500-seat uh, room. And, and so I think it works fine as a, as a TV studio now. What's a good show for you now? Uh, well, What defines a good show for well, you? Well, like, uh, you know, the, I think the last time you were on, I, I say this, of course, to, you know, suck up. Good idea. It was a, uh, a very pleasant, easy Give and take and exchange. I love it when a good, smart, funny guy just comes right back at me. You know, in, in the beginning when we were, oh, he's so mean. Why is he mean to everybody? And I never thought I was being mean. I just thought I was, you know, goofing around. Yeah. yeah. So when you were coming on and you were going after me, ah, that was delightful. I loved that. But those segment producers who you work with, I mean, it took me a while to be able to, I mean, I would do the show with you a number of times. And the segment producers, they would say that to you. They'd say to you, no, no, give it back to him. Yeah, Yeah, he loves that. Give it back to him. So many people, I think, uh, that runs against their nature. Other people are ill-equipped to do that. But there are a few like yourself. And and to me, that's, you know, we had a guy on uh, a couple of weeks ago, Sean Hayes. uh, And I hadn't seen him in years. He had been across the street doing, uh, um, here we go, Hi Ho Promises or whatever that show was. Promises, Promises. Yeah. And the kid comes out, and God, he was funny. I mean, just from the jump, he was funny. And I just thought, this is fantastic. This is just great, you know? If you can't be entertained by your own show, you got the wrong, you know, you got the wrong part of the channel. So that was good. You live a pretty under-the-radar lifestyle. Do you do that by choice? You well, live a very quiet, private yeah. life. Uh, first of all, I don't get invited many places. Secondly, I just would, you know, you do the show, and... and all of that comes to you during the day. You exactly. know, you, you have the same people at the gala, the same people at right. the opening, the same people at Benefit will be the there. with that expression of all that for you. So I don't feel the need to go seek that. And secondly, like so many people, I'm uncomfortable with large groups of strangers. I mean, I think people are. And, and what is your downtime like now? What do you like to do? Uh, well, sleep is a, is a precious commodity. Uh, there's virtually no sleep between my eight-year-old son and, and uh, my two-year-old dog and my wife. My wife, honest to God, has not slept eight hours in eight years. Right. I mean, she, she'll go to bed at midnight and get up at six. So that's six hours. Yeah. You can do that once or twice. Yeah. You know, like when you're 18 and you're in the Marines. You can I'm do dying that. from insomnia. Yeah. I, 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 yeah. Have, I have uh, terminal insomnia. That's it. 
Now, explain to me, when you were in the audience back at 6A and you raised your hand and had a question, what, what was that and how did that happen? Uh, when you did the NBC show? Yeah. There was a woman, and she was a writer, and she was an associate producer on our show. She was friends with Aykroyd and Belushi and all that original Saturday Night Live crowd. And this woman's name was Shirley something. And she was uh, she, she, she's going to reach out to us now when she hears this podcast. We have to broadcast this section of it so we can get a hold of her. And she uh, was the one that got, came to me and through some connection said, they want you to come on Letterman and right. do that thing and ask Yeah, but do you remember what the bit was? I have no idea. But you know. were objecting to something. Uh, something had rubbed you the wrong way. <laughs> yes. And I was there to register a complaint. <laughs> yes, that's right. I was to complain right. about you and your, uh, your taste. Your that's taste. exactly right. Yeah, that was tremendous. That was just great. So when you're not fighting insomnia, what is it? Do you like to travel? Oh, travel? Well, you do things when you have an eight-year-old. As you know, when you have a child, you do things you never thought you would do. And it's fun. We went to Alaska a few weeks ago because uh, it was my birthday. And oh, I was talking to my son and... Uh, and I said, well, you know, we're thinking uh, about uh, maybe going up to uh, Alaska. This guy tells me there's a place to ski up there. And he said, oh, let's go to Alaska. And so I said, well, you know, we're still thinking about it and still thinking about it. And then I hear from Regina that now Harry's gone to school and told everybody that, hey, Daddy, and me and Mom are going to Alaska. And I thought, holy crap. Yeah. See, that's we're how going, we get you. We're going to Alaska. Yeah. So a lot of that stuff is kid-driven. And, you know, I'm all for it. No tennis, no golf. T- no, no tennis, no golf. Um, no movies. Uh, I see plenty of movies. See at all home. the movies. Oh, no, not at home so much. It's all, it's all with the kid. Do you find that your son, because this is very common, he pulls you into the world, into mm-hmm. his world. Right. And you have to show up at things right. and show up at places. Right. And everybody treats you very respectfully. Yep. Yep. They, don't, they don't bother yeah, you. People You're there been, as a dad. Yeah. The last time anything untoward happened <laughs> was a, a Christmas party. Uh, my wife has uh, is friends with a very famous couple, and I have great admiration for the couple, their family. I just I think more people should be like these people. I just and, and and as a result, I'm afraid to be around them because, you know, I'm I'm duck lips. They and, make you look bad. Yeah. Oh, I make myself look bad. <laughs> Went to a Christmas party, and it was uh, so packed that you couldn't move. It was all vertical. N- nothing happened horizontally. And as people kind of from their positions about the uh, apartment spotted me, it was it was as though there was uh, methane gas leaking in the apartment. It was, oh, no. And it's the holidays. And why is he? <laughs> no. Yeah. No, come on. True story. People love you. <laughs> people don't love people me. People love you. People love you. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 no. People, people. But the thing is, is that, that, that you, you get a lot of that quotient on the job. And then when the job's over, you want to go home, be with your yeah, family. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. And, and especially now with, with the eight-year-old because, uh, uh, you know, and I feel stupid talking about it because I'm like the 40th billionth person to have a child. Sure. So I have, I, have no, I have no insights. Yeah. He might claim he has no insights, but if David Letterman ever writes a book on parenting, it's guaranteed to be a bestseller. I want to thank you for doing this. Are we done? I don't want to be done. Is it time to be done? We're done. Now, where would a person hear this if a person wanted to hear this? This might be a good time to tell you that you can hear other conversations at heresthething.org. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing.
Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A Redwood Forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.